Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good morning, everyone, and good afternoon. Good evening, Dr. Brad Williams. Welcome to the Asia Initiative Lecture Series. My name is Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asia Initiative Lecture Series at the Institute of World Politics. For those who are new to the Institute of World Politics, IWP is a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We have a doctor program as well as five master's programs and an 18 certificate of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have doc, uh, Dr. Brad Williams, who will be presenting a lecture on his book, Japanese Foreign Intelligence and Grand Strategy. Dr. Brad Williams is an associate professor in the Department of Asian and International Studies at the City University of Hong Kong. He has studied, taught, and conducted research in Australia, Japan, Singapore, Hong Kong, Myanmar, Taiwan, and the US. Dr. Brett Williams has published on a diverse range of issues in Japanese politics and foreign policy, and is also the author of Resolving the Russo-Japanese uh, Territorial Dispute, uh, Hokkaido, and Sahalin uh, Relations. Dr. Brett Williams, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Amanda, for the warm uh, introduction, and thank you to the IWP for uh, hosting me today. Uh, so let me share my slides. Um, okay, how we uh, how we doing here? Okay, so um, just bear with me. Okay, can we uh, everyone see the slides now? Yes, I do. Excellent. Okay, great. All right. So, um, as uh, Amanda mentioned, I'm going to be uh, talking about uh, my recently published book uh, titled "Japanese Foreign Intelligence and Grand Strategy uh, from the Cold War to the Abe Era," which was published uh, in March this year by uh, Georgetown University Press. Now, given the obvious uh, time constraints, I can't present everything that appears uh, in the book. Uh, so I instead want to uh, present uh, what is chapter three of the book, uh, which is about US-Japan uh, intelligence liaison. All right. Uh, but before I do so, I just want to talk a little bit about uh, the broader uh, book project. So I will uh, explain uh, why I was interested in this uh, particular project. Uh, why I adopted the uh, analytical framework that I did that centered on uh, grand strategy uh, and norms. Now, if we uh, move on to the uh, topic uh, of today's uh, presentation, I'm going to be looking at the impact of the norm of uh, bilateralism, I'll be explaining this uh, very shortly, on Japan's uh, foreign intelligence uh, institutions and capabilities uh, across four uh, liaison uh, mechanisms. Uh, in doing so, I'm going to be borrowing uh, from a framework that was presented uh, many, many years ago uh, in 1996, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, by a former Yale uh, political science professor, H. 
uh, Bradford, uh, Westerfield. So uh, those four uh, liaison mechanisms are institution building and collaborative uh, operations, uh, facilities access, uh, information and support uh, in terms of training and uh, intelligence uh, equipment uh, provision. So the uh, argument that I'll be making in today's uh, presentation about uh, bilateral uh, intelligence uh, liaison uh, is that the US uh, assisted uh, in establishing uh, intelligence organizations in Japan uh, during the early Cold War years uh, that would serve as liaison partners and engage uh, in various forms of collaborative operations uh, in pursuit of uh, regional uh, geostrategic objectives during the Cold War. Uh, so other liaison mechanisms served uh, a similar function and were also employed as a means of keeping uh, a junior ally under Washington's uh, intelligence umbrella. So while Japanese foreign intelligence largely adhered to uh, bilateralist norms, uh, the, the relationship did uh, occasionally cause tensions between the, the uh, respective uh, intelligence uh, communities and their uh, political overseers. Okay, so let me move on to uh, the motivation for um, this particular project. So Japan, like most countries, uh, has uh, organisations or, or agencies uh, whose remit uh, involves the collection of foreign uh, intelligence, the collection, the analysis and the dissemination uh, of foreign intelligence. Now, a lot of uh, Japanese uh, observers, quite critical of Japan's uh, intelligence community, arguing that it is relatively underdeveloped, all right, and is quite abnormal, all right, um, based on an international uh, comparison. So in uh, how is Japan's intelligence community considered to be uh, abnormal? Well, there are four uh, main elements here. So uh, it's believed to be uh, undersized, all right, so it has uh, about 4,600 uh, personnel. Uh, which is considerably less than the five permanent members of the UN Security Council. Also, Germany uh, and Australia have larger intelligence communities than Japan. Uh, it is also quite uh, modestly uh, resourced, all right, with a budget of approximately uh, 1.4 uh, billion, which makes it uh, less than four of the five uh, members of the uh, permanent members of the UN Security Council uh, and similar in budgetary outlays to France, uh, Germany uh, and Australia. Now, a particularly interesting aspect of Japan's uh, intelligence community is that it lacks a specialised uh, intelligence uh, agency that is able to deploy operatives, spies abroad. Um, so all uh, countries that are in the, the G20, uh, apart from Canada, um, possess this uh, capability. Also, uh, countries outside the G20, um, for instance, Israel, uh, Pakistan and Taiwan also have such uh, an institutional capacity. Uh, but the fact that Japan doesn't, uh, despite attempts uh, in the early uh, Cold War years, uh, has become a lightning rod uh, for critics uh, in Japan. Well, another interesting uh, aspect of the uh, abnormality of uh, Japan's intelligence community 
is uh, firm civilian control over human intelligence and also signals intelligence, that so much is not unique or that does not make Japan unique, but the anti-militaristic uh, basis of this. Uh, Anti-militarism, anti uh, sorry, is a norm uh, that's defined as uh, opposition to Japan's military establishment, uh, the opposition to uh, its foreign deployment, uh, and also fears of uh, democratic retreat, all right? So uh, this norm of anti-militarism has seen uh, Japan's mi uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, control uh, defense attache reporting. So uh, Japan's defense attaches are seconded to the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs and the cables that they send from Japan's diplomatic missions uh, have been uh, in the past routed through uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They aren't sent directly to, well, the previous Japan uh, Defence uh, Agency, all right? And the uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs um, did not necessarily pass on uh, all of those um, wires. Uh, another interesting aspect is uh, police, the National Police Agency, uh, its authority over uh, signals uh, intelligence. And I'll talk a bit, uh, a little bit more about that shortly. Uh, and finally, another interesting aspect of Japan's um, intelligence community uh, during the Cold War uh, is its very strong uh, economic orientation. So if we have a look uh, to the right at uh, Japan's uh, intelligence community. So the main agencies that comprise uh, the IC are the Cabinet Intelligence and Research Organization, uh, the National Police Agency, uh, the Public Security Intelligence Agency, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Defense. All right, so the MOFA, the MOD and the MPA have units within them. Uh, whose remit is uh, foreign intelligence. And these four agencies who have uh, dashed uh, lines around them, these are the, the Ministry of Finance, the Financial uh, Services Agency, uh, METI, uh, the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, and finally the Coast Guard. Uh, they uh, can be considered uh, associate members of uh, Japan's uh, intelligence community. All right, so the uh, definition of uh, intelligence uh, that I've adopted uh, in this, um, I borrow from uh, Gil and Pythian. Uh, it's quite a, a standard uh, definition, but if you'll see uh, this uh, and a lot of uh, intelligence studies uh, I've tended to use a, a definition that um, is limited to uh, strategic and military matters, right? So those of you out there who are familiar with Japan's post-war foreign um, and uh, foreign economic and security policies will know, of course, that the uh, post-war Japanese state uh, conceived uh, security uh, broadly, all right? So it wasn't just about military or security matters. Uh, it also involved diplomacy and also uh, economic affairs as well. All right, so Japanese actors, whether it be from uh, Japan's external trade organization, um, the general trading companies, the Sorgo Shosha, um, accordingly also engaged in intelligence gathering 
that was aimed uh, at enhancing the country's relative productivity and competitive position uh, in the global uh, economy. So uh, the book, therefore, uh, examines uh, Japan's foreign intelligence apparatus and collection uh, capabilities uh, in both the economic and the politico-military uh, domains. Okay, uh, so these are the two broad uh, claims that I make in the book. I'm not gonna read these out. Um, I will just leave them, leave them up here for a minute or so for you to digest. Uh, all I will say um, is that uh, in this study, uh, I don't present uh, a model uh, as such, but instead I'm interested in the interrelationship between what I think are important norms, uh, norms that are embedded uh, in Japan's um, grand strategy. Uh, in particular, I'm also interested uh, in the role of norm entrepreneurs, both uh, individual uh, norm entrepreneurs, also institutional uh, norm entrepreneurs, uh, and how they have dealt with various opportunities and constraints uh, within Japan's uh, domestic and regional uh, policy uh, environments. Okay, so let me move on to uh, the analytical framework. So that is a grand strategy and norms. All right, so uh, intelligence, of course, uh, ideally serves uh, as an input into foreign uh, policy, uh, which in turn uh, contributes to grand strategy. So grand strategy uh, is a master plan um, about uh, the way a country uh, sees itself uh, in the world. All right, now many uh, observers of uh, Japanese foreign security policy um, have argued that Japan, in fact, doesn't possess a grand strategy, that it hasn't uh, possessed uh, a grand strategy. How could it, they argue, because Japan uh, has in the past been, has been described as the quintessential uh, reactionary state, all right, a state uh, that doesn't move, that doesn't behave uh, on the international stage according to its own uh, policy objectives, but responds uh, instead to pressure for foreign sources. And the uh, main uh, foreign source of pressure, of course, is the uh, United States. Uh, this is a uh, perspective that I uh, disagree with. I think Japan has um, had a, a grand strategy, all right? So, uh, we need to beyond, move beyond a very uh, military-oriented understanding of grand strategy. All right? The concept has uh, evolved all right, to, to mean the adaptation of domestic and international resources all right, for security uh, in both uh, war and peace. So grand strategy uh, forms the uh, starting point, the analytical starting point uh, for this study uh, and I'm particularly interested uh, in uh, the ideational variables that are embedded uh, in Japan's post-war uh, grand strategy and the particular um, ideational uh, variables that I'm interested in are of course uh, norms, right? which are uh, collective expectations 
uh, about the proper behavior uh, for a given identity. All right, so uh, the relationship between grand strategy and uh, ideas, uh, I think, is best summed up by um, Richard Samuels, right, who states that grand strategy serves as a mirror of national identity uh, and is shaped uh, by a platform of ideas. So the uh, grand strategy that I'll be focusing on in, in today's uh, presentation, of course, is the uh, Yoshida doctrine, all right? And the norms uh, embedded within that national security strategy that I'll be focusing upon uh, will be bilateralism, which I'll explain very shortly, uh, developmentalism, um, the desire to overcome uh, relative underdevelopment, uh, techno-nationalism, the idea that technology um, constitutes a uh, fundamental component of national security, uh, and anti-militarism, which I uh, defined in the previous slide. So the uh, Yoshida Doctrine uh, was named after a uh, former wartime uh, Japanese foreign minister and two-term uh, Japanese prime minister, uh, Yoshida Shigeru. All right. Now, Yoshida himself um, didn't enunciate this doctrine. Uh, it was instead uh, put forward by a uh, former Japanese uh, international relations uh, scholar, uh, Kosaka uh, Masataka. All right. So um, I define the Yoshida doctrine uh, a little uh, more broadly than some. All right, but um, I argue that it comprises three main planks. So the first one, uh, uncontroversially, uh, is that uh, Japan should focus all uh, available means on economic recovery uh, and development. Uh, secondly, and interrelatedly, uh, Japan should depend on uh, its military alliance for its basic uh, security. And thirdly, any rearmament that Japan should undertake uh, should be for self-defense purposes uh, in order to supplement the alliance as prescribed by anti-militarism. Now, those of you who know about Yoshida uh, know that he was uh, a realist, all right? He certainly was no uh, pacifist, right? So some might argue that, um, that claiming that anti-militarism uh, embedded uh, is embedded in this uh, national security strategy uh, is incorrect. However, what we uh, need to be aware of is that Yoshida uh, repeatedly um, made claims about anti-militarism, uh, made appeals to anti-militarism in order to deflect uh, frequent uh, American demands that Japan undertake uh, substantial uh, remilitarization. So uh, in other words, uh, Yoshida was instrumentalizing um, the norm uh, to further what he uh, conceived to be Japan's national interests, right, without being a captive uh, to anti-militarism's uh, normative mandate. So even if Yoshida himself was not a firm adherent of uh, anti-militarism, he was joined in that respect for different reasons, of course, uh, by the Japanese left, the Japan Communist Party, the Socialist Party in particular, also the revisionist uh, faction within the Liberal Democratic Party, the revisionists, all right, 
but this norm was adhered to by the so-called Yoshida school. So these were adherents of Yoshida and the Yoshida line. Uh, and these um, political actors right, within the LDP and also the Japanese bureaucracy uh, were adherents and they were able to resist uh, challenges um, to uh, the Yoshida uh, doctrine. All right, so if we look at how um, this relates to the issue of identity, of course, Japan had uh, multiple identities uh, during the Cold War. And those identities were that Japan saw itself and was seen uh, as a junior US ally, a technology-oriented developmental and anti-militaristic state. Okay, so let's move on to the norm of anti uh, of bilateralism. Sorry, uh, and that is defined by uh, Hook, uh, Glenn Hook, and his uh, co-authors uh, in a uh, leading volume on uh, Japanese uh, foreign policy, uh, and they define it as uh, Japan behaving in the international system within the remit of the bilateral alliance and rarely, not always, but rarely uh, in opposition to it, right? So the proponents of bilateralism uh, could be found uh, again amongst uh, mainstream uh, conservative, most conservatives mostly within the uh, LDP and also uh, within the uh, bureaucracy. So uh, the Ministry of International Trade and Industry, uh, Ministry of Finance uh, and MOFA, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, in particular. Now within uh, MOFA, it was the important uh, North American Bureau and the Treaties Bureau. So for any um, Japanese uh, foreign ministry official, right, who had aspirations of uh, reaching the coveted post of the uh, Deputy Administrative Foreign Minister, uh, they needed to serve in one or both of these uh, bureaus, all right? So the fact that these bureaus were so important uh, demonstrated how important the norm of bilateralism was and remains to this day um, for Japan's Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs. So again, uh, we had opposition to this uh, from both uh, the Japanese left, all right, who argued that um, the alliance with uh, the United States, the US-Japan alliance uh, would have a militarizing uh, influence on Japan, that it would embroil Japan uh, in uh, unwanted uh, conflicts with its uh, communist neighbors, the Soviet Union, North Korea uh, and China. And that it also contradicted uh, public opinion and also undermined uh, democracy. Now, uh, Japan's conservative revisionists uh, basically chafed at the lack of autonomy uh, that uh, resulted from uh, the close military alliance with the United States. So being placed under the American intelligence umbrella meant Japan did not require a large and sophisticated uh, intelligence community 
or was pressured not to develop certain institutions and capabilities. Okay, so the uh, first contact between intelligence officials uh, in both countries uh, occurred a mere four days after Japan's uh, formal uh, surrender in the Pacific War. A Japanese delegation of uh, military and government officials uh, flew to Manila, uh, where MacArthur was uh, based, uh, and they were to receive uh, instructions for implementing uh, the surrender, and they were also to provide information to US uh, military officials uh, for the uh, impending arrival of uh, MacArthur. Now, if we have a look at this uh, photo on the left here, uh, we have uh, Major General Charles uh, Willoughby. Uh, he was General MacArthur's German-born uh, military uh, intelligence chief. Uh, and this figure on the right is, to his right, is Lieutenant General uh, Kawabe uh, Toroshiro. So you can understand that shortly after the end of the war, uh, there was a little uh, apprehension uh, between both parties about, about meeting, all right? Uh, but despite this apprehension, both sides uh, appeared to get on quite well. Kawabe, uh, for one, uh, was able to speak German. Uh, so both he and Willoughby were able to, uh, to converse uh, in German. Um, so the meeting uh, between both sides actually went off uh, rather well which of course would serve as a portent for the uh, occupation that would soon uh, be occurring. Now, Kawabe was not the only one seeking to build uh, bridges uh, with Japan's former foes. Uh, Lieutenant General Arisue Seizo uh, was another one um, who was also uh, involved in organizing a welcoming committee uh, for MacArthur when MacArthur arrived uh, in Japan uh, at the end of August. Uh, he adopted something of a hedging strategy in his early dealings with uh, the Americans, all right? He wasn't sure about how the occupation, the early occupation would turn out. So uh, in a manner that um, resembled uh, his German counterpart, Reinhard uh, Galen, um, he hid uh, a number of important documents uh, that he thought might become useful um, if things go uh, awry, right? So he was going to use these, doc uh, these documents as, as a trump card for his own uh, protection. Uh, and if this didn't work, uh, he planned to uh, resist uh, the US occupation forces. Of course, uh, we all know that such a drastic measure would prove unnecessary. All right, so uh, the United States served as a midwife and a tutor to the Japanese uh, intelligence community. In fact, this or these were roles uh, that the United States uh, intelligence served uh, in relation to um, Austria, uh, Germany as well. So it wasn't unique uh, to Japan, these particular roles. But we see uh, the US role as a midwife and tutor 
uh, we can see this uh, in terms of uh, a number of agencies, Japanese agencies that were established um, shortly after uh, US occupation forces uh, arrived in Japan. And that was the uh, Kato Agency, um, the uh, Cabinet Research Chamber, the CRC, uh, the Musashi Agency, uh, and finally uh, Nibetsu. This was Japan's uh, primary uh, signals intelligence agency. So of these four um, agencies, uh, it was the Kato Agency and Musashi uh, were also involved in joint operations with their American uh, colleagues. So we all know that during the early stages of the uh, occupation, during the first two years uh, at least, that the uh, prime goals were to uh, democratize Japan and to demilitarize it, all right? To weaken Japan, to make it a, a transform it into a democracy so it would no longer uh, threaten its uh, regional neighbors, all right? So demilitarization uh, extended to Japan's wartime uh, intelligence machinery, uh, the special service agencies or the Tokumukikan uh, as uh, they are known uh, in Japan. So there, are, there were a large number of these uh, agencies that were uh, demobilized, right? Uh, a number of them, uh, the uh, officers in these were graduates of Japan's famed Nakano uh, uh, Intelligence School. So during the war, of course, um, operatives from these special uh, service agencies uh, proceeded, um, um, complemented, uh, and expanded upon uh, the Japanese military occupations of Asia uh, during, uh, during the war. So uh, during this early stage of the occupation, uh, Japan, uh, certainly from uh, Willoughby's perspective, and he was one of the few during this early stage of the occupation who believed Japan might soon become a valuable partner in a potential conflict with uh, the Soviet Union, right? So uh, Japan uh, possessed a number of uh, uh, advantages that would make it useful as uh, an intelligence partner uh, for the United States. So the first one is, is fairly obvious, uh, location, location, location. So Japan, of course, uh, was and still is uh, located close, obviously, to the communist uh, adversaries, North Korea, uh, China, of course, uh, the Soviet Union, particularly uh, the Soviet Far East. All right. So uh, this made Japan uh, a useful staging point uh, and also a platform uh, for a number of operations targeting uh, these countries. And of course, uh, geographic propinquity was buttressed by the um, enormous reservoirs of knowledge that the uh, Japanese occupying forces had of the Soviet Far East, large parts of China, large parts of Southeast Asia. So this was knowledge, of course, that the, the Americans could uh, tap into. So Willoughby, uh, during this early stage, uh, approached Arisue and Kawabe uh, to establish uh, an informal, loose, uh, clandestine network of uh, operatives, right? So this uh, loose uh, network was called uh, the Kato Agency, all right? So as we can see here, the name Kato 
uh, derives from the first letter of the uh, five main leaders of uh, this agency. So we had uh, Kawabe, Arisue, uh, Tatsumi Eiichi, uh, Omae uh, Toshikazu, and uh, Hattori uh, Takushiro. All right. So um, what uh, Willoughby was able to provide um, for the approximately 40 um, uh, Japanese who uh, were a part of this um, agency uh, was that he provided them with a safe haven because uh, many of them indeed had criminal or suspected uh, criminal paths. So uh, Kawabe himself uh, was a former head of intelligence for the uh, notorious Kwantung uh, Army. Um, Adi Sue uh, played an important role as a uh, military attache to Italy uh, in negotiations leading up to the 1940 uh, tripartite uh, pact, uh, which prompted SCAP uh, officials outside of G2, outside of military intelligence, uh, to consider indicting him as a Class A uh, war criminal. Uh, Tatsumi, who was Prime Minister Yoshida's uh, confidential uh, military advisor, he was aware that he might be personally uh, indicted as a war criminal uh, following the torture of uh, Chinese POWs uh, by subordinates of his in the Eastern uh, District Army. Omai was a senior uh, naval uh, intelligence, uh, naval staff officer, sorry, uh, who participated in the planning uh, and execution of important military campaigns, uh, including the defense of the uh, Marianas and uh, the Philippines. Uh, and finally, Hattori was a former secretary to Prime Minister Tojo, chief of the first section of the General Staff's operations. Uh, division, and he helped plan uh, the Imperial Japanese Army's um, successful operations uh, during 1941 and 42. So Willoughby uh, provided a lot of these um, intelligence officials uh, with uh, employment uh, where they worked in the uh, G2's uh, historical section uh, mostly providing assistance with what can be described as uh, Willoughby's uh, three-volume uh, hagiography to General MacArthur's uh, prosecution uh, of the uh, Pacific War, all right? So it provided them with employment, uh, a salary, of course, during a very uh, desperate period in, in Japan's early post-war history, uh, and also kept many of them uh, out of prison. So uh, in 1947, all right, 1947, 1948, uh, we had the famous uh, reverse course, okay? So with the um, emergence of, of global uh, Cold War tensions, uh, the occupation forces undertook this reverse course. So whereas Japan uh, was previously, the idea was to weaken it, uh, emphasize democracy so it wouldn't threaten its neighbors, uh, instead, the idea was to uh, strengthen Japan so it would serve as a, uh, an ally of the United States as a bulwark uh, against uh, communist uh, expansion uh, in the region. So in terms of the impact this had on uh, intelligence, 
So Japan was transformed from being uh, an intelligence target to an intelligence platform for the United States. <clears throat> All right, so uh, I will talk about uh, an operation that uh, the Kato agency uh, were entrusted with, and that was uh, Operation Takamatsu. And this uh, was a two-pronged strategy, which was planned uh, in 1948 and was supposed to be conducted the following year. All right, so it was broken up uh, into uh, Take, which uh, was uh, centered upon uh, a foreign intelligence gathering uh, campaign, which was further subdivided into a northern and southern theaters. So in the north, uh, operating from uh, within Japan's northernmost island of Hokkaido. Um, the idea was to send operatives to uh, Sakhalin, uh, the southern half of which, uh, of course, uh, was Japan's former colony uh, called Karafto, and also the former Japanese uh, Kuril uh, Islands, right, which the Soviet Union had uh, occupied during the closing stages of the Pacific War and beyond. Uh, in terms of the southern theatre of operations, China and North Korea uh, were the foci. Now, Matsu um, had a domestic focus. So the uh, focus was on domestic uh, communist threats. So the resurgent Japan uh, Communist Party, uh, labour activists, and also uh, repatriated Japanese prisoners of war, uh, many of whom had been uh, indoctrinated or brainwashed um, in Soviet uh, labor camps. So uh, there were a number of problems uh, that arose uh, with this uh, operation. First of all, um, G2, uh, US military intelligence, um, provided very loose supervision. So G2 was involved in the planning, uh, provided assistance, logistical support, but basically left um, the planning uh, to the Kato agency uh, operatives. So this very loose supervisory uh, uh, arrangement uh, was in many ways a microcosm, of course, of uh, SCAPS, the Supreme Commander of Allied Powers or General Douglas MacArthur, all right? Uh, SCAPS, uh, indirect rule over Japan, where SCAP uh, issued directives and it was the Japanese government uh, bureaucracy uh, that carried out uh, these policies. Uh, the second problem uh, was mismatch, sorry, uh, objectives. So uh, a number of these uh, Japanese uh, participants uh, exaggerated their uh, skills in uh, gathering intelligence uh, for the United States. Many of them, of course, well, all of them were, were stridently anti-communist. So that uh, was an objective, of course, that they shared uh, with SCAP and with Willoughby uh, in particular. Uh, but beyond that, they were really motivated by the desire to pursue uh, or to use intelligence cooperation with the United States to promote uh, a right-wing agenda, which, of course, included... Um, a reconstituted Japanese military, um, which would serve, of course, a resurgent uh, Japan. So you could certainly not argue 
that the Japanese uh, operatives were imbued with any strong sense of uh, bilateralism. Uh, indeed, there was a, a quid pro quo uh, between the Japanese and Americans. So the Japanese would provide information uh, in return for permission to uh, engage in smuggling. So uh, routes that could be uh, investigated, devised for uh, sending in operatives could be equally useful for smuggling, of course, which was uh, an important means of subsistence, of course, during these very desperate times uh, in Japan. Uh, another issue uh, was factionalism. So there were a number of tensions, problems uh, within uh, these uh, agencies, um, really driven by, riven, sorry, by, by factionalism. Uh, and this was so bad that it um, facilitated uh, the penetration by uh, Chinese uh, communist spies. So basically this Operation Takamatsu, uh, apart from uh, uh, an operation to send military advisors to uh, Taiwan, was really uh, a failure. So the uh, China and North Korea operations were cancelled. A uh, Japanese fishing vessel that was sent to uh, Soviet waters uh, was apprehended and the crew uh, were given a 15 year sentence uh, of which they served uh, seven years. So the relationship between uh, the Japanese and uh, American uh, participants in this uh, operation can be described as a case of outward obedience, inward uh, opposition, which the Japanese refer to as menju fukuhai, all right? And of course, this was a theme um, that can be discerned, of course, or a big theme um, in John Dower's, of course, award-winning book, uh, Embracing Defeat. The, uh, I, the idea that there was a modicum, there was an appearance of uh, American control during the occupation, uh, but uh, Japanese uh, political actors uh, were able to uh, exercise considerable agency. So we see this uh, certainly in terms of um, occupation era uh, intelligence operations. Okay, so uh, towards the end uh, of the occupation, so American and Japanese interests uh, converged uh, around the establishment of a more formalized uh, and centralized Japanese <coughs> intelligence apparatus. So Japan uh, would require uh, an intelligence organization uh, to complement its military. Uh, Prime Minister uh, Yoshida was also a firm adherent of a Japanese intelligence agency, which he believed would play uh, an important role in Japan's uh, nascent uh, diplomatic efforts. Um, from the American perspective, of course, the end of the occupation, the, which meant the end of SCAP, the end of G2, uh, the end of this rather dysfunctional Kato agency, uh, would mean that America would need uh, a new liaison partner. So there was also an American interest to try to influence the establishment of a Japanese intelligence agency that would serve as a liaison partner. So um, Willoughby, uh, in this respect, uh, in early 1952, uh, dispatched two agents from this notorious 
Z unit, which was um, part of the American uh, counterintelligence course. So they were involved in, in a lot of shady uh, dealings, I guess the most notorious of which was the uh, kidnapping uh, of the uh, well-known leftist uh, Japanese writer, uh, Kaji Wataru. So uh, Jack Cannon, all right, um, was the leader of this uh, unit. Uh, so he, along with a uh, South Korean operative who had been seconded to G2, uh, had served during the war <clears throat> in the Kwantung Army, um, had visited Yoshida at his uh, holiday house in Oiso in Kanagawa Prefecture uh, in early uh, 1952. And they discussed uh, potential models that a, uh, upon which a, uh, a new Japanese intelligence agency might uh, be modeled. Uh, Yoshida, for his part, uh, suggested that the two meet with uh, a close political ally of Yoshida's. That was Ogata uh, Takatora uh, here who had recently, he had been purged, uh, had only recently been depurged, didn't hold any formal political position at this stage, but he uh, was one of a number of um, Japanese who during this early post-occupation period had been formulating plans uh, for the establishment of a Japanese-type central uh, intelligence agency. So uh, these two Z unit members met with uh, Ogata, uh, during these meetings, they described the structure and functions of various Western intelligence agencies. Uh, Cannon, for his part, um, argued that uh, any new Japanese intelligence agencies should be under the authority of the Prime Minister and should be headed by uh, a confidant of Cannon's Murai Jun, who had been working for G2 uh, and had attended uh, numerous social gatherings that uh, Cannon uh, used to host uh, at his uh, location in, uh, in Japan. So Marai uh, was subsequently tapped to be the head of the Cabinet Research Chamber uh, when it was established in uh, April uh, 1952. So this was a 30-strong 30, uh, intelligence organisation. Now this uh, was not meant to be the institutional endpoint for Japanese intelligence. It was meant to be uh, a stepping stone to a more substantial uh, and expanded organisation. So over the following 15 months, uh, Japanese and US uh, intelligence officials uh, engaged in a number of uh, discussions about what such uh, an organisation uh, might look like. So uh, if we were to sum up the, the US role in this, uh, one former CIA official uh, rather triumphantly noted that uh, we made the CRC, which really is uh, hubris, all right? What the United States did do was provided uh, support uh, for these uh, Japanese operatives who were part of the Kato agency. So it kept them out of prison um, they were provided with uh, a livelihood. Some of these, uh, including uh, Tatsumi, were able to use this freedom um, to plan, to help uh, play a role uh, in planning a uh, Japanese intelligence agency. Uh, Tatsumi in particular played a very, very important role in terms of staffing uh, this new uh, intelligence 
agency. Uh, the Americans also obviously provided knowledge. Okay, so let's now uh, talk about a, uh, a joint uh, intelligence uh, agency, the Masashi Agency. So this was established uh, in 1961 and grew out of a program that had been initiated five years earlier called the MIST program, which stands for Military Intelligence uh, Specialist Training. So um, even though it had been established in, in 1961, um, most Japanese, of course, didn't know about it really until uh, 1977, when the Japan uh, Communist Party, uh, in the in the Diet in Japan's Parliament, um, announced a uh, JCP uh, Diet member announced that he, had, in fact, a colleague of his had received a letter from a former member of this shadowy uh, unit that was engaged in a number of illegal oper operations. So this letter claimed that this, this agency, Masashi Agency, was involved in the kidnapping of the then uh, Korean opposition leader, Kim Dae-jung, in 1973, uh, and it set up a number of front companies in Japan that were engaged in uh, intelligence operations. So this, uh, if you look at diet proceedings in Japan during this period, uh, it featured quite prominently uh, but the uh, self, oh, sorry, the Japan Defence Agency at the time basically stonewalled, denying that such uh, an agency existed, and it receded. The issue receded from uh, public consciousness um, really until uh, 2010, where a former head of um, this agency called um, uh, Hirajo uh, Hiromichi. Uh, was prompted to write his own account because a former member of this unit had basically outed him uh, in an earlier publication uh, of a book. So this uh, unit was under the authority of both the ground self-defence forces <clears throat> and the uh, United States Army, uh, comprised uh, personnel from both services uh, with an operations division uh, that was actually uh, under the authority of a Japanese officer. Uh, so this unit uh, also experienced a, a number of problems. Uh, first of all, the, the Japanese members were not overly enthusiastic about joint operations, believing that they had the skills and knowledge to be able to undertake uh, more autonomous uh, operations. Uh, from the US perspective, there were criticisms of, over the quality and quantity uh, of the intelligence that their Japanese uh, counterparts were producing uh, and also insufficient uh, coordination. So this was also uh, arguably a, a microcosm of broader tensions between both armies, the US Army and the Grand Self-Defense Forces. Now, despite a, a number of sensationalist claims uh, by Japanese authors, uh, our uh, Hiromasu uh, is one, um, really, a lot of the most of the operations of this unit were actually quite far removed uh, from the glamour of, say, uh, a James Bond. Um, even though the unit was supposed to be involved in foreign intelligence gathering, um, the activities were centred on Japan. 
And while there was a, a focus on uh, human intelligence, this basically consisted of uh, members of the unit interviewing uh, Japanese who had traveled to either North Korea, the Soviet Union or, or China, uh, business people, uh, sailors, uh, etc., and gleaning intelligence after these uh, so-called legal travelers uh, returned to Japan. So it certainly wasn't the cloak and dagger type of operations that, <clears throat> that some people uh, argue. Now, in 1973, this unit uh, was moved uh, from Camp Drake uh, inside Tama Prefecture to Camp Zama in, in Kanagawa and was uh, allegedly downsized after these JCP revelations uh, in the late 1970s. So Japan's uh, self-defence forces, the, the JDA, uh, continued to deny that such a unit uh, ever existed. Okay, so let's now, I uh, have about five minutes left. So, okay, let me talk now uh, about uh, signals intelligence, which uh, is arguably the intelligent discipline that is most um, impacted uh, by this norm of bilateralism. So uh, the United States, again, uh, towards the, the end of the occupation, uh, assembled uh, members of Japan's uh, National Police Reserve, which was established in 1950, uh, to staff a signals uh, intercept organization um, located in uh, Saitama Prefecture, just north uh, of Tokyo. So this uh, was also a, a mixed uh, unit. Uh, and in April 1958, uh, this uh, unofficial unit uh, became the annex chamber of the second division of the ground staff office or Nibetsu, uh, as it is known in Japanese, which was the predecessor of Chobetsu, which was in turn uh, incorporated into the defense intelligence headquarters <coughs> in January 1997. So for uh, reasons similar to uh, Japan's role in collecting human intelligence. Japan also provided a propitious uh, platform for SIGINT uh, operations. So again, Japan was uh, conveniently uh, located for these operations. So um, a combination of geographic um, proximity uh, and also uh, advances in uh, Soviet uh, missile technology uh, resulted in the uh, North Pacific uh, becoming the major Soviet test site for intercontinental uh, ballistic missiles, all right? So uh, units uh, in Japan and US forces in Japan were able to fly from Japan um, to uh, gather intelligence, uh, telemetry, etc., on uh, Soviet missile technology. Uh, another uh, factor was also uh, atmospheric conditions. So uh, Japan was uh, reportedly uh, located uh, very conveniently uh, so it could receive uh, very high frequency VHF signals um, that were uh, relayed over the uh, East China Sea and also uh, VHF signals uh, that came from uh, Southeast Asia. So the US uh, assumed control of existing uh, Imperial Japanese Army and Navy uh, facilities and constructed new facilities during the occupation and early post-occupation years. So at one point, there were nearly 100 sites located in Japan 
uh, that were involved in signals intelligence collection. Uh, and this number made Japan the host uh, of the largest number of US uh, SIGINT facilities, uh, overseas facilities uh, during uh, the Cold War. So uh, in the early 1970s, uh, the US uh, transferred, partially transferred some of these uh, facilities to the Japanese, uh, but were able to retain a measure of influence over these operations uh, through the joint uh, manning of these facilities. One such uh, facility located in the northwestern part of uh, Hokkaido called uh, Wakanai um, hosted uh, such a unit uh, called Project Clef uh, in 1982. This was a US unit that was located within the broadest Japanese SIGINT base, uh, but operated from their own rooms uh, independently of the Japanese. And as I will uh, discuss uh, in the next slide, uh, this unit um, remained secret uh, until the early aftermath of the uh, controversial Soviet downing of a Korean Airlines flight 007 uh, that had flown from uh, New York originally via Anchorage, supposed to fly to uh, Seoul. Um, and it, for mysterious reasons, uh, deviated from its intended flight path and was shot down by uh, Soviet uh, fighters just off the southwest coast of Sakhalin Island, killing uh, 269 people, including uh, a number of Japanese citizens. Uh, so this downing revealed the highly uh, asymmetrical nature of bilateral uh, intelligence sharing. So uh, both Project Clef and the Japanese themselves uh, recorded Soviet air activity uh, during the shootdown of uh, KAL uh, 007. So um, a former uh, head of the uh, Japanese police and later a chief cabinet secretary, uh, Gotoda Masaharu, um, claimed that he only found out about this, that he only received a detailed report from the Japan Defence Agency uh, eight hours, in fact, after the plane had been shot down. By this time, um, the self-defence forces had already sent their recordings from Wakanai to the large signals intelligence base in uh, Misawa in northern Honshu. And from there, they were uh, sent automatically to uh, NSA headquarters in Maryland. So for uh, a senior Japanese uh, SIGINT officer, this uh, intelligence sharing route uh, was considered to be quite natural. Gotora uh, himself was very upset at this, uh, argued that this uh, intelligence sharing mechanism uh, questioned Japan's status uh, as an independent state. Even the pro-US uh, Ministry of Foreign Affairs was also critical of this, arguing that um, the uh, SDF's behavior uh, endangered Japanese sovereignty and also undermined uh, Japanese diplomacy. Japan also uh, evinced a sensitivity to uh, American concerns uh, regarding the uh, release of the recording. So Tokyo uh, was initially uh, reluctant to release uh, the air to ground recordings uh, that the Japanese uh, had recorded uh, because it would, there was a fear that it would uh, compromise um, Japan's SIGINT capabilities. 
uh, after American pressure, uh, the Japanese uh, acceded uh, and the Japanese high quality tapes uh, featured in uh, President Reagan's uh, address to, to the American people and later to uh, UN Ambassador Jean uh, Kirkpatrick's uh, address uh, to the United Nations. Of course, uh, the cat was out of the bag. Uh, the Soviets, as a result, changed their codes, radio frequencies uh, and procedures, uh, which obviously uh, severely impacted the ability of Japanese to collect um, signals intelligence over um, the Far East. Uh, the Japanese themselves uh, instituted changes in the aftermath of this, institute, uh, of this incident, uh, reinforcing civilian control uh, and subservience uh, to the United States. So there was to be no, no longer uh, the automatic relaying of Japanese recordings to the United States without uh, approval from uh, senior Japanese political and SDF figures. Okay, uh, very, very quickly, because I have uh, run out of time, I'll be done in a minute. Uh, finally, uh, intelligence support, um, uh, the impact or the, the role that this can have in helping uh, the US to monitor and nurture a, a junior ally. So this uh, can occur through two mechanisms. First of all, uh, equipment provisions. Okay, so as I mentioned before, uh, Japan uh, took over uh, US uh, established signals intelligence buildings, uh, infrastructure such as uh, antennae, uh, which the US uh, deemed to be surplus to uh, requirements. The US also provided uh, advanced communications equipment uh, for uh, maritime self-defense force uh, signals uh, intelligence collection operations that occurred um, close to uh, Soviet uh, territorial waters, known as the uh, mission submarines or NIMUKA. Uh, the Japanese uh, are said or were said to, to uh, during the Cold War to be heavily reliant on US uh, cipher equipment, um, which could potentially, there's no really firm evidence of this, although some Japanese have made uh, such an assertion that it makes Japanese uh, uh, vulnerable uh, to monitoring. So when you're using old technology, uh, hand-me-down technology from a partner, all right, this old technology is susceptible uh, to uh, monitoring. Uh, training, um, so we all know that um, Japanese civil servants, there might be some of you out there um, today, uh, receive extensive training uh, abroad uh, from the, uh, with it within the US uh, in particular. So this is not just uh, about uh, the US imparting uh, specialist knowledge, but is also believed to serve a means of socializing partners uh, such as Japan into uh, accepting uh, lib liberal democratic norms uh, and becoming reliable allies. Right? So there is evidence uh, that uh, in the context of US-Japan intelligence relations, that training transformed former foes into friends uh, and reinforce the bilateral bonds uh, between uh, both sides. But of course, as we know, human psychology is, is very, very complex uh, and foreign training programs, of course, uh, are not uh, are guaranteed uh, to engender uh, affinity between uh, hosts and uh, participants. We see this uh, in terms of the distrust uh, that arose uh, within the Masashi Agency a uh, number of Japanese authors on 
the issue have spoken or have written about, sorry, how, Jap how they were aware that the US was seeking to use training to, to extract information from them and even to possibly uh, brainwash them. Finally, okay, so to conclude, so the first uh, direct uh, intelligence contacts between uh, US and Japanese officials uh, occurred in the earliest days uh, after the end of the Pacific War. So um, Japan, uh, since this time has been under the US intelligence umbrella, uh, since the institutionalization of the uh, bilateral security and defense relationship uh, in the early 1950s. So Japanese uh, intelligence personnel uh, were mobilized in pursuit uh, of policies uh, aimed at supporting uh, the US um, against communism, in particular uh, curbing the, the spread of, of communism uh, within the region. So uh, the US uh, intelligence uh, rendered various forms uh, of assistance uh, to uh, ensure that Jap their Japanese partners would uh, adhere uh, to bilateralist norms. So gen Japanese generally uh, operated uh, faithfully within uh, this uh, alliance framework, although as we've seen, uh, some were not always content with playing the role of a subservient uh, junior ally. So I apologise, I've gone over by, what, six minutes. Uh, so on that note, I'll finish up there. Thank you for your attention, and I'm ready to take questions. Thank you very much, Dr. Williams, for such an interesting and insightful lecture, and we'll take questions now. So if you have any questions, please type them in in the Q&A chat box. So the first question is, which is having a more significant impact on Japan's intelligence community and why? Japan's participation in the Quad of or China's domestic and foreign affairs? Sorry, was that the Quad or, or, or China? Yeah, in the Quad or China's domestic and foreign affairs. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, in the... Of course, you know, the, the quad is, is uh, you know, the uh, relationship between uh, the countries of uh, Japan, India, the United States uh, and Australia. So there's been quite a lot of discussion uh, about um, this, um, in th this grouping, right, this grouping. Some have argued that perhaps it might even become a uh, stepping stone to perhaps a region-wide uh, multilateral um, security framework. I must admit, in my readings of the Quad, you don't really hear too much uh, about intelligence. Of course, this is not to say that there aren't intelligence discussions that have taken place within this Quad framework, uh, but I would argue, if we were to, to pick which of, of the two was more important, uh, and I talk about this a bit in the final chapter of my book, um, China, of course, China is uh, perceived by uh, Japanese, uh, rightly in my opinion, as a, a threat to to uh, regional uh, security, a threat to Japanese security. So we have seen uh, a number of uh, Japanese over the last five or six years have been arrested uh, by uh, Chinese uh, security forces for engaging uh, intelligent for engaging in uh, intelligence operations. And of course, there's a lot that we really don't know about these types of operations. Uh, but if some of these are actually intelligence operations, I think this would demonstrate or would could be used as evidence 
of how uh, Japan's intelligence community, uh, within the intelligence community, it's believed to be the, the, the PSIA in particular that's been involved in these so-called operations, uh, it would be evidence of how important they um, see China and how eager they are to uh, become, uh, you know, to keep abreast of what's taking place uh, within China. So thank you. I hope I've answered that question. Thank you. And the next question is, looking at present and future developments in ever-evolving relationship between nations, in your opinion, might formally upgrading five eyes into six eyes with the addition of Japan uh, be a good idea? If so, how would it work? Yeah, um, actually, um, I spoke, I also within the book, I, I talk a, a little bit about um, the five eyes. Um, Japan, of course, is not uh, part of the five eyes. It is a, a, a said to be a third party, all right, uh, and has been uh, since uh, the 1960s. So the five eyes, of course, for those of you who are unaware, uh, is uh, an Anglophone intelligence grouping that comprises uh, the uh, signals intelligence agencies of uh, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the UK, and of course, uh, the United States. Um, while Japan is a third party, which basically means Japan and the other third parties, such as a number of NATO countries, South Korea is also said to be uh, a third party as well, uh, provide intelligence uh, to the United States. So they are third parties as a result of their respective bilateral alliances uh, with the United States. Um, and this is a very asymmetric uh, alliance for these third parties. Now, there have been uh, a number of discussions. Uh, Japanese uh, officials have come out arguing that, you know, there's a preparedness or a willingness for Japan to become a member of the Five Eyes, making it maybe uh, the Six Eyes. Of course, Japan is not the only country that has uh, been perceived to uh, be able to play a role within an expanded version of the Five Eyes. South Korea is one, uh, Germany uh, and France uh, is another. But if we focus on Japan's position within the Five Eyes, one of the criticisms in the past, certainly a criticism I think that was valid uh, until uh, until 2013, when Japan passed a, a uh, secret state secrets protection law, uh, was that there was opposition to sharing any significant intelligence with Japan because Japan had a reputation for being a spy heaven. All right? So Japanese uh, intelligence officials uh, leaked and leaked quite regularly. So there's obviously a reluctance to share um, secrets with Japan, knowing that those secrets could end up um, with uh, the country's uh, adversary. So as I've said, uh, there have been discussions um, about maybe uh, incorporating Japan uh, into uh, an, uh, an enlarged uh, Five Eyes framework. Um, I don't think that there's opposition within uh, the Five Eyes. I think uh, Australia is supportive. The United States, I think, uh, is largely supportive um, but we'll just have to watch this space to see whether it happens. Should it happen? Yes, I would agree. Japan's a close uh, ally of the United States. Japan uh, cooperates uh, with 
the Five Eyes partners uh, in terms of um, security uh, intelligence operations. So you could argue that as Japan is slowly becoming more normalized uh, in international security and intelligence affairs, uh, you could argue that it's a, a logical extension or a next step that Japan um, becomes a full member of, a, of an expanded Five Eyes Alliance. Thank you. And the next question is, how much is Japanese intelligence doctrine influenced by its adoption, oh, sorry, adaptation of ancient Chinese art of war? The ancient Chinese art of war. Okay. We're talking about Sun Tzu and, and that sort of stuff, are we? Chinese art of war. Um, well, one of the interesting things about Japan's foreign intelligence uh, community, uh, and as I touched upon this at the beginning of the presentation, in that in, is that it lacks a, uh, a specialised foreign intelligence agency. So uh, the US, as I showed in this presentation, played a role in helping to set up the Cabinet Research Chamber, which was supposed to be, uh, you know, a stepping stone to, to a, a more expansive uh, institution uh, with, with greater powers. However, uh, this didn't occur, uh, as I argue elsewhere in the book, because of anti-militarism, all right? There were fears uh, that if Japan was to establish a, uh, an analogous institution to, to a, a CIA, a JCIA, that this might um, undermine Japan's, of course, nascent democratic reforms in the 1950s. So um, the Japanese uh, diet, uh, and the Japanese mass media embarked in quite a uh, vociferous uh, campaign against uh, any Japanese attempts to establish such uh, an institution. So uh, in, that, in that respect, I would argue that, that, that in terms of lacking this uh, foreign human capability, um, that there probably isn't much of an impact, Chinese impact, uh, particularly in terms of the ancient art of war on Japan's uh, intelligence practices. Um, you could argue actually, to look at it in, in a different way, that of course, as you all, all are aware, I mean, of course, China is uh, seen in, in the United States and elsewhere as, as public enemy number one. And one of the reasons for this, of course, are Chinese espionage operations are within the United States. So interestingly, uh, a lot of the allegations about what the Chinese are doing, how they're going about their uh, industrial and economic uh, espionage operations, in fact, mirrors in many ways the discourse or the allegations that were levelled against Japan uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. Of course, Japan was seen not, not as the, the enemy because, of course, you know, Japan wasn't still as a close military ally, but was seen... Uh, as an economic rival, an economic threat uh, to the United States. So uh, in many ways, I think you could argue that perhaps um, that maybe the Chinese have been copying some of Japan's earlier economic uh, intelligence gathering uh, practices. Thank you. And again, if you have any questions, um, you can just type them in in the Q&A chat, uh, chat box right now. Um, we will just take a few more questions because we have a little bit of time left. Mm -hmm. 
We'll just give it about a minute to the audience. Sure, sure. Um, one of the attendees asked if you would be willing to share your uh, PowerPoint presentation slides. Sure. Uh, well, I, I, I sent them to you, Amanda, actually. But let me, but um, just on that, uh, there actually is a, a typo. I had uh, for the date on one of the slides, I think it's slide, uh, with the establishment of the Cabinet Research Chamber, I said it was established uh, in the slide I sent to you, Amanda, uh, on the 9th of May, 1952. That is incorrect. It was the 9th of April. So change the, the five into a four, please. So uh, if you could do that, Amanda, then I'm, I'm more than happy for you to uh, share my slides with whoever is available, uh, whoever sure. wants Sure, sure. Of, we'll... of, of course, you could you, you could buy the book as well. <laughs> comes out, of course, not only in uh, hardcover, but paperback and also in uh, an e-version, Kindle version as well. So Great. buy the book, please. <laughs> sure, we'll definitely share. Um, so we will definitely uh, send out the PowerPoint slides, um, usually after about a week later um, to the attendees. Sure, no problems. Yeah. Okay, we got, we just have a question right now. Um, Okay, so um, the next question is, is there a budding relationship and cooperation in sharing intelligence between Japan and Taiwan? Uh, I would not say it's a budding relationship. I would say it's a long-standing relationship. Uh, in, in fact, uh, even going back to the, the early uh, post-war uh, years, as I mentioned before uh, in my presentation, um, you know, Japanese had sent uh, military advisors uh, to uh, Taiwan. Uh, there had been a long-standing uh, intelligence uh, liaison uh, relations uh, between Japan uh, and Taiwan. So I wouldn't say uh, they're not budding in a sense that they have been quite long-standing. Of course, they haven't really been substantial, of course, because of uh, if the Chinese were to find out that there was something significant going on between uh, the Japanese and Taiwanese intelligence communities, of course, they would, they would rightly argue that it undermines uh, the one China policy and the Chinese, of course, would get uh, very, very angry. So um, I think there, there is a longstanding um, intelligence relationship um, between members of Japan's and, and Taiwan's intelligence communities. I touch a little bit of, again, a little bit of, about, about this uh, in the book. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Williams, for uh, joining us today. And thank you again for such an interesting and uh, really just in-depth uh, research on, on a very fascinating topic. And um, so we will have upcoming events in the fall. Um, and if things uh, go back to normal, then we'll probably have um, events in person. So please um, check them out on the website, um, IWP events website. And again, thank you very much everybody for joining us today. And
Yeah, thank you everyone for your attention and thank you for the uh, the excellent questions. I uh, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And this okay. concludes our presentation today. Thank Cheers. you. Okay, take care everyone. Bye.